Hey there, I'm Frank, host of Reader's Labyrinth. The tone, the pause, the starkness, a raw and visceral listening experience, a masterclass in horror. I simply cannot get enough of this genius. Soren, you truly are in a league of your own. By an Apple Podcast review. Of the 20 plus horror fiction podcasts I subscribe to, the production and story quality of Knife Point, for all its simplicity, stand far above its contenders in the genre. These reviews were taken from Soren Narnia's Knife Point Horror Podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. In the realm of podcasting, there's not very many content creators out there that have been doing this for more than 10 years. But I would like to introduce you to a writer thriving in this format, and his name is Soren Narnia. Soren is the creator and narrator of the horror podcast A Knife Point Horror and the fiction podcast Those Snowy Nights You Read to Me, They'll Never Be Forgotten. Soren is an absolute tour de force in exposition, atmosphere, and subversion of the listener's expectations. But don't look for neat endings or tight plot lines here. Your only friend is the lonely shadow of life's messiness stalking the land. A landscape haunted by bad decisions, mental illness, fragile relationships, and the ever-present threat of a preternatural terror. On a more personal level, I found myself coming to Knife Point Horror in those snowy nights over and over again, on knees, bended by my own personal tragedies and losses. In Soren's tale from the ether, I found a bomb, which enables me to deal with life's challenges and setbacks. So, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Soren as much as I did. I hope also that you'll consider supporting Soren by joining his Patreon account for as little as $3 a month. A link in the show notes is provided, as well as his podcast and various other works. And if this interview has given you value, I would like to humbly ask that you like, subscribe, and share this with a friend of yours. Thank you so much for stopping by, and please join me in welcoming Soren Narnia. Thor and Narnia, welcome to Reader's Labyrinth, sir. Hey, Frank. Happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. I understand that you were on a hiking trip about a week ago or so? I was. Nothing too strenuous. Uh, I avoided the ticks for the most part, and really that's that's the only victory that really matters nowadays when you're hiking. Um, it's good times. Out on, the, out on the Appalachian Trail just for a day. <clears throat> Love it. Well, if you would like some ticks, pollen, and some humidity, you're welcome to come to South Carolina, where the Appalachian Trail kind of sneaks through our county of Valhalla, sir. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll hit that stretch someday, definitely. <laughs> In December. In December, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I have some questions drawn up, and these questions come from me being a listener to Knife Point Horror and your other podcasts, your other works out there. And I've also kind of delved into Reddit. I've delved into some of the reviews. 
So I really want to get into what makes Soren Narnia tick. So I'm going to start off with the first one, if you're ready, sir. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Excellent. What's the story behind your pen name? Oh, um, yeah. When I was in elementary school, just briefly, I forget what grade it was. I, uh, there, there was a kid in our class who, you know, he needed a lot of help. He was developmentally sort of challenged. And uh, they would sit him next to this kid or that kid to kind of help him along. And um, I just remember there was this thing. He would get so excited and so happy sometimes that he would just start shouting nonsensical words. Um, and one of them sounded to me like Sornarnia. That's that's my memory of it. The one long word. God knows how it was spelled. It didn't mean anything. It was just this exclamation of like things were good. And it was just fun to say this word to him. And I never forgot that kid. I never forgot that word for whatever reason. And just um, that word, when I realized how it kind of split into kind of an odd name, I thought, you know, isn't isn't that just life? Isn't that just like life? Some strange little um, coincidence like that. And uh, just this tie to a distant memory that you're not even sure how reliable it really was. Uh, yeah, that's that's a perfect pen name. That's a perfect one. I love the last bit that you just said there, Soren, and you said how memory can be a little bit spotty, I guess, and how little things that happen in our past can have a big event later and why those things kind of stick with us. So mm. already I can kind of see the seeds that make your writing what it is was kind of set long ago. So I'm sure that we're going to get into that. So for our next question, one of the things I found intriguing is your work stands on its own, apart from any marketing strategy that I can see. Hence, there are no official Facebook, Twitter, or otherwise hub of discovery. Is the decision to remain aloof intentional or just how it all worked out for you? Uh, I was just never interested in, in any of that marketing stuff. I just found it kind of fatiguing. And it just took me away from thinking up stories, which is all I ever really wanted to do. Everything uh, beyond that was just not entertaining to me. Um, plus, I think I, I don't really feel that comfortable getting too big an audience, I think. I think I'm kind of a happier uh, in the niche of the niche. So it doesn't I, – I even trying to make the, the most uh, – the simplest effort in that direction it just doesn't, uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like a bit of a fraud when I do that. It's like, it's, I don't really enjoy it. And uh, I'm probably better off kind of hiding just a little bit. Cause that's where I feel comfortable. Well, if by some miracle, this interview does make you go mainstream, I would take full responsibility for it. <laughs> I will so. cut you in for 50%. If this, if this is what does it, man, you are, I'm going to hook you up. <laughs> yeah. I did have a lot of fun on Twitter uh, for a couple of years, just being completely silly, but uh, even that seemed, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. It was just a bit too, too much, you know, life is complex. So I had to cut some things. Well, it, you know, it really seems like, and, and before I started doing this, I was a history podcaster. And if anyone is interested in the Ottoman empire, I've got the hookup for you, but, when I was doing that, what I've noticed is like the promotion would just, it had a tendency to suck up all the oxygen in the room and mm -hmm. you were constantly yeah. cross promoting with other content creators and you were dipping your toes. I mean, I was doing guest segments for other podcasts and then slowly that was kind of the creeping death for that podcast. I mean, I was like, well, I can just delay this episode 
well, I, you know, they don't really need to know what happens to the Sultan in this year. And so that creative energy, especially towards research, like I was doing, I can definitely, you know, see in the decision to kind of step away from that. Yeah. And you can sense it in when you listen to other people's podcasts, you can sense that the the marketing and the efforts to expand uh, the listener base, it kind of starts to cross over and slightly infects the nature of the show itself. And I don't, I don't like to, I don't like to hear that as a listener. Uh, so I wouldn't want to do that to, uh, I wouldn't want to put the listeners through that any more than they already are. I assume if they listen to one podcast, they're listening to a dozen, right? And 11 out of 12 of those are probably, uh, you know, with the commercials and the Facebook liking and the, and it just kind of, especially with a fiction podcast, and it, it, I think it, it hurts, it hurts the atmosphere just a little bit. An atmosphere is something we're definitely going to talk about with your podcast, especially the music. Cause I am fascinated with how you choose those tracks, mm -hmm. why you choose one versus the other, which I have that a little on down the road. So on that note of marketing, do you follow any of the unofficial Soren Narnia fan pages on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, or other social media at all? Uh, I don't. And again, it's just it's just cognitive overload that I can't quite uh, work in. But I, I also figure they ha would have more fun without me poking my face in there. You know, the, the, the conversations can be freer. The theories can be crazier and more interesting, probably. So I don't want to be sort of uh, lurking there in the background and, and ruining the uh, ruining the flow of the conversation. So for everyone in the Reddit forum that I have been creeping around, Narnia <laughs> may or may not have been using a pseudonym in there. So be very careful. Well, yeah. I mean, how <laughs> yeah, do they know? How out, do they know? You don't know. Feeding, feeding ever more misinformation about myself into the room. That's right. Exactly. I like it. So before Knife Point Horror and the snowy nights you read to me, they'll never be forgotten. What was your writing like? It was a lot more varied than it has been for the last few years. I was I would write anything and everything on any any topic that floated into my realm, even briefly. I would get enthused about enough to write a story, half a novel, a whole novel. Uh, it was very creatively restless. And uh, a lot of varied things came out of it. Now it, it's been more focused on the suspense and supernatural stuff of of recent years. But I, I try at least once a year to really sort of sink my teeth into something something different. But yeah, it used to be total chaos with me. I, I, my imagination was just spitting out all kinds of crazy nonsense. We're going to get into some of that crazy nonsense that is wonderful nonsense for so many of us. So I heard you mention on a few other interviews, the influence of Joyce Carol Oates on your development as a writer. What is it about her work, which you find most fascinating? Mm. Uh, you know, I was, I was a fan of hers uh, for years before I even realized that she also wrote a voluminous amount of suspense fiction. Um, she, she wrote some dark stuff. She, like she has, she's, she, well, that's the thing that with, with Joyce Carol Oates is that a lot of the stuff, I haven't even read it all as good as I think it is because she works so dark and it's not conveniently the supernatural that she works in. No, no, no. She scratches around in just the darkest corners of the human uh, psychology. Uh, these characters that are just terrifying because they just went sideways. 
And uh, I just, I love, I always loved how it, so often it's a, it's a nice, simple situation, middle-class, upper middle-class people in some New England college town and everything outwardly is just fine. And then by page three, you realize that there's just this rot in the center and something absolutely terrible is going to happen. And I always have such dread with her uh, suspense stories because I'm afraid, like, I think, oh, Joyce, are you really going to go there? Because if you are, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this because this is dark. <laughs> so, yeah, she and it she's really just a great is, writer. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I read uh, several of her novels. She's just excellent with character, excellent all around. She just knows what she's doing. So your talent isn't just writing, but in producing shoestring budget YouTube videos, my favorite of which are drop-ins, and please correct my, my pronunciation of the sword, but I believe it's Jarpercon. Yeah, uh, can you exactly yeah. right. Oh, watch out, watch out. Uh, can you tell us about the experience of making those videos? Did you have help, and will there be more of them? Uh, yeah, th these videos, th they're... They're really fun, interesting artifacts for me because what they are is it's my attempt to sort of bring like a like a Tuesday night Zen approach to making a movie. I want to try to sometimes reduce the effort of making a movie to about the, the level of like doing a jigsaw puzzle at home on a Tuesday night. So when I get an idea, I will write it out longhand, just take some notes, nothing official. I'll grab whatever... I'll grab my phone. I'll grab whatever camera is lying around. No lights, no special equipment, no microphones. Maybe I'll overdub later. And uh, and yeah, I won't involve anyone else if I don't have to. Because the second I ask someone else to get involved, then it's a thing. Then it's a project. And I don't want that. I want to be, I want to be really easy and as stress-free as possible. Because it's just physically exhausting to do. So I'll do a little shot here, a shot there, make myself a nice cup of coffee. And over the course of two or three nights, it'll just sort of get made. And uh, maybe it'll turn out okay, maybe it won't. But I, there's just a certain effort level that I can't uh, dive into anymore. So I still like to play around with the camera, but I like to keep it really, really low key and zen. And it's, it's kind of, I ask myself, okay, what don't I need to make a, a short movie? Not what do I need, but what don't I need? Uh, and if I have to play all the parts myself, so be it. You know, what I really liked about what you just said was about lighting. And that's something that I picked up because, you know, just kind of thinking about it offhand, whenever I watch drop-ins and when I watch um, uh, Jarpercon, it seemed like a big part of that experience, for me at least, was the lighting. And like in drop-ins, like there's lurking shadows everywhere. Which is, which is really strange because when I listen to the podcast version only of it, and, you know, the scenes, and I'm not really thinking so much about, like, the characters or the settings, but the atmosphere in the YouTube was so much different, I guess, than the audio version that I got simply mm -hmm. kind of, you know, what was playing in my head. And I thought that the YouTube version, I mean, very, very a primitive one, right? I mean, you you were the only actor in it, but playing the various roles and, like, when the door would open when the second visitor showed up, and when you were sitting in the couch in the living room and the light was coming in, I guess, from an outside lamppost, mm -hmm. I mean, it just had this totally creepy vibe to it. And, and I mean, it just it really kind of kind of sucked, sucked you into it. 
And the way the shadows would like follow across your face the entire time I was thinking, I was like, how did Soren do that? I was like, he must've had like a little lamp here and, and, and like a lamp over here. And he, and he must've just got those shadows just right for that film. Right. It's uh basically, I, I have two lamps in my apartment and I just arranged them the, so, cause I'm, I'm a big fan of very naturalistic, uh, filmmaking, real audio, uh, available light, nothing artificial. And it, horror is a great genre for that because the cruddier a horror movie looks to me, the more it sort of works to bring out that atmosphere. So to me, it's just not necessary to, to go out and buy a light or, um, anything like that. Um, and I'll just, you know, drop-ins was completely overdubbed later. So I didn't even, oh, you know, oh, just, really? it was, yeah, every, every, every oh, line okay. was, was because oh, I don't wow. have, I don't have a any kind of decent microphone. So oh, yeah. I'll just, um, do the old hook up the podcast mic later on and, and do it that way just to make it easier, just to make it more headache free because I, it's just the second a single light has to be moved or there's some sort of boom mic. I I'm, I'm done. Like, no, I don't want to do You're this out. <laughs> I, Yeah. Can I just go watch football? Cause it's too much. It's too hard. <laughs> yeah, these students, yeah, I was involved in a couple of yeah. student films uh, in the last year and just watching these people work. I just got exhausted and I, I can't do it. <laughs> I cannot do it. Well, I really love the effect of that film and like, like, like I said, the lighting of it. So I guess that was some of the, some of the secret sauce then I was able to glean from you about that was the lighting. So I think it's a good time to move from YouTube. And I, what I would like to do is discuss your overall experience and opinions on podcasting, your experiences, your, uh, you know, where you think the format is headed in the future. So with that being said, your primary creative formats are podcasts. What are the advantages in using podcasting as opposed to other media? And would you ever see yourself switching to something else in the future? The, the beauty of it for me is total creative freedom, 100% total creative freedom to experiment, to do whatever I want. And then that great sense of being done with something. Uh, I used to, when I used to write, um, and maybe occasionally submit something, there's always that sense of like, well, it's not complete somehow. I, I, but with a uh, an audio story, I can write it. And when I click upload, there's that feeling of, you know, as, a, as a writer, like you want that I, I'm done with it. I can move on. I took it as far as I wanted to go with it. That's it. And podcasting is one of the few things that gives you that instant feedback. Like even the smallest podcast will start to get feedback. It will get a certain number of listeners right off the bat, which was amazing. So I'm still a big believer in podcasting. I think I do worry that, uh, like we were talking about, the marketing, uh, you know, big marketing is slowly gobbling up uh, podcasting, but there's still, there's still niches. I, I, what I'd like to see, what I'm hoping to see is a lot more experimentation with sound and audio and, wildly different formats, um, taking it to their creative ends. You know, I, I like to hear a podcast that just blows my mind with, wow, that's, that's different. What they did there. I, I hope we get a lot more of that in the future. You know, as someone who has a podcast myself, again, you know, kind of going back to a history podcast, a difference I've noticed is that it seems like in 2018 and 19, there's some sort of 
silent little shifting of listeners. And I think a big part of that was TikTok and YouTube with bitter irony as we sit here chatting on YouTube. But I've noticed that um, it seems like a lot of the interactions have kind of gone down for a lot of the content creators in podcasting. And it's funny that you mentioned the arrival of marketing a podcast. I mean, there's podcasters, instead of starting out with an idea or a passion or wanting to experiment and no kind of ju judgment on them. I mean, if it's what you do, then it's just what you do. But they start off with a business plan and, you know, they will, you know, solicit advertisers, they'll solicit investors. And I see more and more of that as the radio stations, too, as they're slowly kind of dying a slow death, their grant money's running out. They're kind of moving into this um you know, into this format. And I have no idea what it's going to be doing in the future. I know Spotify is, you know, Spotify is going to be turning into the Sauron of the podcast <laughs> world as mm -hmm. it's fixing to square off with Apple podcast and their monetization model and their RSS feeds. They're trying to centralize everything. Mm -hmm. And what I like about podcasts myself is that it's not a centralized model that you can get your content out there and uh, monetization can take a vertical as well as horizontal format. But I'm kind of worried about the, you know, the syndicates of podcasts eventually just being Spotify and Apple podcast. And I kind of think you're right. smaller. Yeah. Right. And if they, and they have no use for real shoestring stuff because they want to put their promotion money into bigger budget thing. It's, exactly. it's a concern. I think about it a lot. I think, for the next 10 years, you can still get by with just being one person with a microphone, one or two people and whatever crazy idea you have, because there are still yeah. outlets. And thank goodness there's always, you know, you can always have a personal website, put up an MP3, be completely independent of all that. YouTube is still, YouTube is still more phenomenal than it really should be. I thought by now YouTube would have been gobbled up. And it would be like a subscription service thing. And you can't even, I, you know, a couple of years ago now, suddenly, suddenly sometimes you don't have a choice as to whether there's ads in your own content. Now I've noticed, which is really depressing, but um, it's, it's still, it's still possible to be, to be crazy with a podcast and, and really go your own way and, and still find people. So yeah, I hope they just don't find a way to bottle that all up and, and, and cut it off. And for anyone who's listening or watching this interview with Soren, he said something earlier. He said, no matter what your idea is, no matter how crazy it is, go ahead and do it, A. And B, you never know what kind of listeners you have until you stop doing it. And mm -hmm. I understand that Knife Point Horde, uh, didn't it take like a sabbatical at one point where there was only, um, and I'm kind of going off script here, but when I was doing the research for this, I was reading the, uh, your show notes in a couple of podcast episodes where you said, you know, the show will not go quietly into the dark or you said something to that effect. And I was like, Oh man, I hope he wasn't thinking about, about giving it up, you know, which was many year, years ago, I think, but, um, but I'm sure yeah, that you see uh, there was, um, it was kind of a big experiment in the, in the beginning. I had about 12 or 13 stories I wanted to do. And then I was, I was done. And then I just happened to notice that the numbers kept going even a year after I had stopped uh, and I would still get emails from people saying, do you have any more? So I, I really, really it was the, the listeners that pulled me back in because I was done. I was like, Oh, that's, that's all right. I, 
podcasting is interesting. Now let me, I'll try another kind of podcast. Maybe they were having none of that. They, were, <laughs> they didn't want, they wanted more horror stories. And I, you know, I'm happy to do it because it's, it's kind of fascinating. And I promise we're going to get into that more. I've got a few more little general questions for us. If you were starting from scratch today, and I think we kind of settled the answer, but I still like to hear what you have to say. Would you use podcasting as your main vehicle of getting your content out there? So if you had to start one of your podcasts right now or a show right now, would it be podcasting? Would it be YouTube? Would it be something else? I think it would be podcasting. I, I still love the idea of no visuals. What can, what can you do with sound? What can you do with the voice? I think it would be because uh, I used to be more into movies, um, but just the, the effort level. And I, I can't get all the ideas I have out of my head onto video fast enough. I just can't do it. I can barely keep up with, with audio. So I still, yeah, I, I think podcasting would be the way that I would go if I had to start over right now. Uh, it might not even be a horror podcast. It'd probably, in fact, be something very different. But uh, yeah, single microphone, me alone in my basement apartment. You know, it's that you can't beat that. You can't beat it. What else do you want? I mean, it has some romantic overtones to it. I picture you alone in the darkness with this creepy story. There's like a candle somewhere and you're just, you know, you're reading it in with your voice, like that cadence that you can get into. I love it. In reality, and, I um, usually record with like, you know, the TV is on, has like the Simpsons on mute. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, not, quite, not quite the atmosphere. That, that you're so um, as I recall, and I'm not sure if you did this for all of them. I'm not sure if you're still doing this, but on your show notes, you would license your work under Creative Commons 3.0. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what that means, but from your show notes, you said that you would allow anyone to take your work and reshape it as they pleased. And I have to say, Soren, I have never found another writer that had or has such radical open source views of their own creation. And I just wanted to know if you would elaborate on that. Is that only for certain stories? Is that no longer the case or what's your thoughts about that? Uh, it, it's, it's pretty much still the case. I, I always just like the idea. Um, yeah. Anything that, that appears on the, the podcast is under a creative commons license, but yeah, I, I like people uh, when they, uh, make some bootleg adaptation of one of the stories or uh, comics or a black box theater production. Or uh, one guy I knew took uh, one of the short stories and he wrote basically a, an entire novella based on the concept. Um, and I think that's great because I, I never was much on the idea that my own ideas are, are especially sacred. Like, like all writers you know, I'm, I'm just loitering on the shoulders of giants. Uh, and I, I like the idea of having, of people having fun. And if, if someone can get uh, a B in their intro to film class by making some nine minute adaptation of something I did, that makes me feel useful actually. Uh, and I always wanted, when I was a kid teaching myself how to write, I would get excited over doing maybe some radio play of some movie or um, I just think it's, it's great. I, I think we should all, share a little bit more. You know, the interesting thing is in this country, in America, maybe it's the same with other cultures. We have such respect for the creative work of others that in general, people don't really 
um, jump on that opportunity that much. Uh, they're not simply just taking the stories and slapping them up on their own podcast or anything like that. It's it's very people are very respectful of of other people's the notion that other people's work is is their work and that you know they should leave it alone. Um, so yeah, as as of this, if if it's on the Knife Point Horror podcast, it is under that uh, in, under a Creative Commons license, and I think it's I think it's just fine. I would pay to see a black box production play of one of your stories. I think that that would be totally totally cool, and uh, I love like the yeah. underground feel of it. Uh, you know, I imagine there's some videos that are floating around out there. If someone could do some digging in it, <laughs> yeah, I, I know a couple yeah. of people have have done it. And yeah, I just, I, I, I always love the black box theater concept. Anyway, I was very into that. Like, you know, yeah, give me a, give me a little tiny stage and 12, 12 dubious people in the audience. That <laughs> yeah. I, I love that idea. Let me, let me work in that arena. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So, um, I'd like to get to your work then. And I'm going to start off at, uh, you know, I suppose an odd place, but, um, 3:13 AM. And I found this book on Amazon probably two or so years ago. And this was after I started listening to Knife Point Horror. But um, it was published in 2012. And again, you can get a copy of it on Amazon for those who are curious. And when I was coming up with these questions, I thought 3.13 a.m. would be the perfect jumping off point, despite it probably only being talked about amongst us hardcore Soren fans. However... I detect that a lot of the secret sauce, which so makes your work absorbing to listen to, present in this little book. In fact, I find myself coming back to 3.13 a.m. quite often. And these days, I'm inclined to think of it as something of a window into how you process the world around you. With that being said, can you tell us about the writing of 3.13 a.m., where those ideas came from? And is what I said about it being a glimpse into how you perceive the world accurate at all? Yeah, that book kind of, that tugs at a memory of uh, writing at that point when, when I was, I really felt like in, in full flight with the writing. And it, sometimes it amazes me that I had that many ideas for those little, little tiny vignettes. And um, that book it does reflect my sort of my my view of life itself because it, it's kind of a sad book, but the, there's some stories in there, little vignettes that are very hopeful, um, very happy. I think to me it's it's a it's kind of like a meditative book, but it's it's a very sweet book in a lot of ways, and it's it's how I see life. I think to me life is a bit of a it's a bit of a very dark comedy. It's often very sad, but there are just moments of of hope and uh real real beauty and um it makes me really happy when i have an idea for something that's maybe two pages long that i can actually express like one of those moments and i yeah i just i think wow like who was i that i had like 30 or 40 of these in me at that time you know where did where did that guy go um so i hope to get back to to more writing like that uh, at some point you bring up a really good point about, you know, it's not exactly a sad book, but it's kind of like the secret sadness that humans carry around inside of them. And there was one uh, short story in there about where these people were building, I guess, like a rocket complex 
And this engineer had devoted his entire life to building these rockets in the complex. And then the rockets, they took off to go to fight whatever kind of war in outer space. And it had like a very Ray Bradbury-esque feel to it because he kind of had the same thing. Like when he would describe the surface of Mars, he would, and he used the Martians to kind of show the alienation that human beings felt just walking around inside. And there's so many, it, it's not really a conflict in it that I, you know, that attracted me, but everyone has a different expectation of what someone else is thinking in that little book. I mean, it's mm. like, like, um, that's something that I really took from it. And that secret sadness, like there's a, um, you know, like you said, there's a dark comedy and a tragedy to human existence. And you see that with anything as simple as the passage of time. And there was another story in there about, um, I believe a family, they found a box full of some photos, which I really love that imagery. And I noticed that you do a lot of that in those snowy nights too, about, you know, this father, you know, and you can tell by the photos that he had been arrested because there was a break in the chronological order of the photos. But then after they had reconciled whatever their differences were, and there's something so fragile about human existence. And that's what I like about um, 313 AM. I mean, it has all these observations about the human condition distilled in those little short stories that you, that you do very, very well. And so I have to ask, will there be another book like it? And how has 313 AM affected the general trajectory of your writing, if at all? Well, just listening to you describe it, 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 it inspires me. Like, you know, I want to do another one right now. Because it, it, guys, it makes it me right feel good the way, how you describe that. Yeah, it's <laughs> I do three fourteen. <laughs> three fourteen a.m. We're doing it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do see myself in the long term getting back to that kind of writing because I, I do like. Yeah, what you said about the fragility of life. It's so fragile, and there's such inner loneliness among people in their daily lives. But there, even amongst that, there can be just these moments. And just to write about those moments where just the, the beauty of living just squeaks through just for a minute for these characters. Um, I like writing about that. I like writing stories with unexpectedly happy endings. I like writing stories where there are no villains, where people just like each other and they help each other. I dig that. Um, so uh, when, when I think about the kind of thing I want to write, wind up writing, that's when I think about that book. Um, and I think about the times I would read some of the stories from that at like an open mic night because they're so incredibly short. And it's a good feeling. It, I had a good feeling standing at the microphone and writing those and narrating them for the for the audiobook version. I just felt like I had done something um, nice. <laughs> and sometimes nice is, is just a good feeling. Sometimes... The feeling of doing something nice is worth, uh, you know, 10 scary stories, even though the nice stuff gets listened to about a 10th as much in my case. But yeah, I'll do, I'll do another one. I'll do more of those. I swear it. I'm swearing I'm on you YouTube. YouTube, you know, it's, it's, there it is. It's a court of law. That's right. It is forever recorded too, Soren. We're going to hold you to it. So I think that's a good segue to our next kind of part. Themes, feeling, and your worldview. 
in your writing. If I can get my questions here in front of me. As a longtime reader and listener of your work, especially Knife Point Horror and those snowy nights you read to me, I've spotted some reoccurring themes. Mental illness, suicide, unreliable memories, frailty of human relationships, unsteady employment, and different phases of isolation. First, always mental and then physical. Not very many authors out there have taken on such themes and weaved them into a tapestry of primal dread like you have. Are these themes a wider sense into how you view the world, humans, and relationships? Or are they literary devices, pure and simple, that you use to tell a scary story? I do find the world to be a very scary place and I find life to be inherently kind of uh, unfair. Uh, but even I, as I enjoy it and I have a much better break than most people, really what those themes are meant to do in the horror is it's all geared toward creating creating a three-dimensional character so and the more three-dimensional the character is and the more identifiable their problems are then the more you feel for them when they become isolated and frightened um it's uh so it's really more of a a character development thing than me trying to i'm not trying to say anything about life i'm, I'm trying to be I, I always remind myself to you know be more delicate you know life is not this dark let's let's lighten up a little bit here so you know you, you don't have to do this but I, I do find that to give a character some real issues that they're struggling with and make them identifiable and don't just pay them lip service then the listener will start to believe more that that's a real person so it's partially just literary uh, technique, but it's it's just, it's undeniable that some of this stuff is autobiographical in the sense that this is so many of these narrators are essentially versions of me uh, in the in the situations and how I would probably react in those situations, which is I would just start screaming and run or or hide, you know, you know no no bravery at all. <laughs> You know, I, I can really get a sense of how you would, um, of, of what your actions would be in some of these scenarios. And it's really the inflection of your voice whenever you're telling them, like, I told him <laughs> to not come near me. Like, you know, especially in prisoner, I was like, this is exactly what he would be like if he was in the situation. And, uh, you know, you know, it's so authentic. And that's what I really like about it. <laughs> And so we're going to go more into the worldview. I heard you ask a host once on a podcast about what I have coined the Soren Narnia box paradox. Your question went something like this. If you had a box and inside was definitive proof of the paranormal or super reality, as some of my viewers like to call it, either proof verified or falsified, would you open the box if it cost you all the money you had or your house? or something along those lines. So I can't recall how your host answered, but I'd like to put the question to you, Soren. Would you open it? And what are your thoughts on the paranormal? Yes, I remember, I think that was um, Amy Pownessa of the Bloodlust podcast. We got into that That's discussion. That's who it was. And, and, yeah, I remember that she said she would. And I, I reiterate, I'm doubling down. No, I ain't gonna open the box. Because 
it's just it's going to make an already incredibly complex life even more so. And like, what am I going to do with this information? And what if I pay that money and it turns out there is nothing and now I am penniless and there's no paranormal uh, or supernatural or anything more to life. That's so I, I, I still I just don't want to get involved. I don't want to get involved with whether there is supernatural or not. It's just too. Uh, what, what, what I, there, there, I even I, I stuck the words in a character's mouth for a radio play I did once where he says, you know, when it comes to how we live day to day, what difference would it make? We still got You still got to get up and pay the bills. You know, uh, it doesn't change the batteries in my remote control. If it turns out that there's such a thing as psychic powers or or Stonehenge is, you know, channeling energy to UFOs. Uh, but in general, you know, I think there's there's more to life than science tells us, but only because science hasn't figured it out yet. I I don't really believe I don't believe in ghosts or straight up supernatural occurrences. Some things I can't explain, but uh, as always, to me, I'm one of those um, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence kind of guys. So I would love. Uh, to see real evidence of, of some really good spooky things, but I, I don't believe in it personally. I never really have. Um, one day we'll have unlocked all the parts of our brains. I think maybe there's some psychic phenomena going on that will reveal itself, maybe. But uh, as far as the, as the phantoms and spirits, nope. I just I just don't just don't believe in it. It's that gritty realism coming out in Sora Narnia, folks. Gritty. On full gritty. display. Keyword is gritty. Gritty. You know, my own personal thoughts on it is, you know, are you familiar with the Fermi paradox? And I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole. I'm, I promise I'm going to put a, you know, a period at the end of this. But um, I, I explain it to me again. I've heard of it, but I don't. I forget. I okay. keep forgetting it. You know, to me, it's Schrodinger's cat. From your paradox, there's too oh, many. Oh, Schro um... Schro Schrodinger's cat. I know. You know what? I, I honestly think that that's a word game that a bunch of physicists made, made up just to confuse us. But um, so the Fermi paradox goes like this. Oh, sorry. My fault. Good. No, no, no. You you are perfectly fine. It, it kind of goes like this: If the universe is as old as it is, as big as it is. And if we take a scientific material reductionist view of the world, which is more or less what my worldview is, just in full disclosure, then why have we not seen evidence that evolution has happened, you know, elsewhere on other planets? In other words, why isn't there some galactic federation out there? Why can't we see a Kardashev two level civilization when we look out across the Milky Way? Mm -hmm. All that we really see is a dead universe in a dead universe where we seem to be the only ones there. And there's many and various, what they call solutions to the Fermi paradox. And one of which is the zoo hypothesis. And it basically goes like this is that, and Carl Sagan, I believe was the, Hey, you know, uh, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And, uh, the late Dr. Um, uh, Stephen Hawking said that, if an alien intelligence, you know, could get to planet Earth through any kind of means, and I know that in uh, quantum mechanics, the idea that a particle can exist simultaneously on two planes of existence on one side of the universe and the other and all this higher stuff, I'm probably just squawking like a, a happy seal at this point. I don't understand it. 
But if they could come to planet Earth, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between gods and an alien civilization. And that part right there and the fact that scientists, you know, scientists and smart folks, <laughs> and I'm kind of exposing <laughs> my ignorance here, but on other podcasts I've listened to with like Avi Loeb and he's, and he talks about time travel and how really for them, it's just a mathematical and engineering problem at this point. And so when I hear about experiences like a ghost, uh, psychic energy, all this stuff, you know, is it a ghost? I don't know, but I just can't help but wonder like if in the plane of human existence, you know, there are intelligences greater than ourselves that could be ourselves from the future or could be other intelligences out there. And what would they look like? And so for any kind of bracketing that I've tried to build around the paranormal and I've put it down like, well, you know, my brain is scared of what goes bumps in the night because, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, well, that could have been a tiger or a dinosaur coming to eat me or something. And just what Carl Sagan said and what Stephen Hawking said, especially about aliens, if they're real and would they really be aliens when they got here? I mean, they could be another manifestation. That's always kind of given me pause on the paranormal. And I'm like, Hey guys, you just don't know. But then again, that's high speculation on just some guy named Frank. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes I feel that way with, it's the silliest thing, but deja vu sometimes, you know, when you get deja vu so powerfully, that's when I almost stop and think, man, I, I know the, the scientific explanation for deja vu it makes perfect sense. But man, if, 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 if anything would be an indicator all along that there are other us's maybe moving in different time flows, deja vu, I think, would be it. Because, oh boy, when you get caught in it for like a good seven or eight seconds, uh, very odd. Yeah, that, that's interesting about the, the aliens. I had always, I'd always thought, well... Let's say there are civilizations beyond space and time. I always, I always thought, what makes us so egotistical to think that they would have any interest in contacting us or coming here? Maybe we're just a teeny little data point in a vast multiverse of similarly meaningless data points. Like I don't, I don't stop to try to contact a fly that I see on the sidewalk buzzing around a. a a Snickers bar. Like not, sorry, not interesting to me. I'm, uh, I'm not going to contact it. And uh, have you ever, um, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, I think about the size of the universe and the ex expansive time. And to me, it never gets old just boggling my own mind about how big everything is and how vast time and space are because it, you, my it, my imagination our imaginations can't even conceive of it that's how and sometimes uh i used to work with a guy who was into astronomy and he would, he would like to say to me like have you ever have you ever just stopped and, and think how meaningless and tiny you are in, in the cosmos and the the vast expanse of space and time like yes i i have and i do enjoy it because it's just, it's so mind boggling that it almost makes me believe that a higher power has created this to be beyond, so far beyond us. That's the, that's the game. That's like, you know what? You can't even imagine how small you are compared to the vastness of space and time. 
no amount of, of, of watching YouTube videos where they have the, the, those incredibly clever models where they'll show you, okay, you know, you, we're this dot and you know, here's the moon, here's Mars, and then here's the rest of how far you have to get to the edge of what we know. And uh, some, sometimes you'll, you'll have to scroll the mouse and it'll just say, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Now keep scrolling for another four days. And you're starting to get a sense of how I, I love that stuff. I eat that stuff up because that to me is, I don't know, it's proof of something. It's, a, it's not proof of the supernatural or anything, but it's just proof of how there are, there are forces in the universe that are, are so mind boggling that I, I think our, our, our brains are simply not big enough to conceive of them. We shouldn't feel bad about this. Uh, you know, a fish's brain is not big enough to conceive of, you know, the works of Shakespeare. Our brains are just not big enough to conceive maybe of the real uh, supernatural that is out there. What's so fascinating about what you said is the size of the universe. And if we get down to the scale of the universe, we're talking about something where human ontology, epistemology, and even metaphor itself breaks down. Like it doesn't even come close to it. Like we can come up with a metaphor for God, for spirits, for obscure mathematics, but we really can't come up with anything to describe the size of the universe. It's just that big. Yeah. So and we can't even a, bring sense. It doesn't, doesn't even make sense why it should be that big. There's no sense. Yeah, we can bring yeah. to that. Like why, why should it be? It's like, it's so much bigger than it needs to be. <laughs> and and then you're talking about a plane of existence where time itself is relative. And I mean, I still, I mean, what does that mean even? I mean, time is relative. I mean, we think we know, and then you have things like black holes, quasars, but so, so here's a scary thought to, um, you know, to aliens wouldn't pay us any mind. All it takes is one. And we have people that get their PhDs and flies landing on turds. It's really, really weird field of study, but, um, I kind of think like, hey, there could be a gazillion Googleplex level of civilizations. We could just be another data point, but really it only takes one, which I think I would think be a disaster. A you sound like a believer. You sound like you're waiting for it to happen. <laughs> well, I can. Okay, guys, listen, he figured me out. This is Drop not a me a text. Code. Drop me a text this when they come because I do not want to miss it. I don't want. <laughs> I think sometimes that when they do come, it'll you know, it'll be so strange. Like they'll be just light. Or there'll be, and there'll be no communication of any kind. There'll just be little particles of matter, and we'll have to rely on, um, you know, the June issue of Science Magazine to tell us. Oh, by the way, these are the aliens. Sorry mm -hmm. to disappoint you. There's no craft per se. They're just kind of on your shirt sleeve. You know, we were hoping for more, but that's that's what they are. Yeah. Soren, that sounds like the beginning of the damn good story. Oh my gosh, that sounds like um. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see, what's that H.P. Lovecraft story where the aliens like lives in light and they could use light to travel across time? What so, is that? Oh, I'm thinking of uh, the color out of space, but it's not quite that. I don't but, think you know, it's all, the color all out of space. All stories had some kind of like the shadow out of time was. I want to say yeah, it was he, that. Yeah, the shadow yeah, out, of out of time is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Okay, I'm going to have to cul-de-sac this rabbit hole, although I'm hoping to have you back on. You know, later in the future, I'd love to go down rabbit holes with you, sir. That sounds like really fascinating topics. So I really want to get into the kind of segue. That was not a great segue, but the snowy night she read to me, they'll never be forgotten. An absolute gem is what that podcast is. 
Where does this podcast fit within the broader corpus of your work? And how did the idea for this originate? Well, I had, I did have a lot of things that I had written that were not horror. And I, um, and I, you know, I had like a personal love for all of them, even though some of them were better than others. I just, I wanted someone to hear them at some point because I worked, worked hard on all of them. And uh, it also represents kind of my hope that I will get back to that kind of writing sooner than later. Now it's, it's been, I think, more than a year since I posted like an audiobook to that that podcast. And I think about that all the time. And I, you know, I have another one that I want to work on. I really want to work on and do it. Um, so it's good that that podcast, and I think of it just as a, as a fiction archive, really more than a podcast, but it's good that that's out there and I still have it going because it reminds me of, uh, you know, there's more to the creativity than, than writing another suspense story, even though I do enjoy those, but I, I want to get back to it. And, um, I also just want, I, I do want people to think of me as someone who's not, not dark or strange or sinister. And I think a lot of those stories evidence that pretty well. Yeah. I think your last story was angle of the light and that came out in February of last year. Hmm. Ah, and, um, <laughs> you know, um, I actually had a bunch of questions on that, but, um, I was thinking to myself, I was like, I've got to narrow this down a little bit. I don't want to just wear him out on this interview, but my, my favorite part of the angle of the light was the closing of it when you were wrapping everything up, because I kind of thought you were going to leave me hanging on that story. I thought, well, Soren will kind of leave you. It's not exactly a cliffhanger and I don't know enough about writing technique to kind of know what you're doing, but it's kind of like, wow, it's like, what just happened? but you wrapped up everything so neatly in that story and you talked about the three women characters in it and about how he decided not to pursue a romantic relationship because, you know, you know, there was this deeper magic. I mean, it, it was like a deeper sense of human relationship with them. And, and just the way you worded that um, was, I, I mean, I really, really appreciated that in the story and I thought it was a great kind of turn to it because I kind of feel like any other author, you know, would have pursued a romantic relationship with, you know, his main character with one of those women. But the, the but the entire story was just a good human story. It's like, you know, this is what people deal with. And uh, February twenty yeah, first. I, I, like, I, like I like a good love story, like anybody else. But I thought, yeah, how about how about one where. The, the the man comes to realize that he's he's getting something more from from these women that he can't that, that it can't ever quite be as special as if he decided to um to really follow through on on his feelings for for whichever one that he did have feelings for uh, i thought that, that would be interesting and you know the nice thing about something that's not horror or suspense is that i i don't feel bad at all about wrapping everything up nice and neat that's that's the I I like dangling creepy loose ends in in suspense and horror fiction, but when it comes to kind of a heartfelt melodrama, I like it when everything just it, it it's put into a bow, as long as it's done done, you know, truthfully and honestly. Well, that's something I can say. That story is it's truthful and it's very very honest. Now, my absolute well, I'm trying to think. That would be a close toss up between an oral history of hell and song of the living dead. In fact, I'm, I'm going to say that out of, um, 
the snowy nights you read to me, they'll never be forgotten. Those are my two absolute favorite, especially an oral history of hell. Um, I lost my brother a couple years ago and, you know, his favorite story of yours on knife point horror was, um, uh, impound. And we used mm. to listen to it. And even through his depression and the mania that he went through in the last part of his life, that was one of the few things that we could kind of like get out of, you know, I guess our relationship at that point. And, you know, an oral history of hell, like it really hits you in the gut. If, and here's the kicker for a listener, if you've experienced a little bit of suffering in life, and I don't want to compare mine to anyone else's, but I feel like people who have suffered in life and kind of gone through that dark night of the soul are going to walk away from all of your stories in snowy nights you read to me with a little bit more than someone else who hasn't, but kind of backing the bus up a little bit, I'd like to take us to Song of the Living Dead. And again, this is released on the Snowy Nights on July 2015. And it is a wonderful example of your voice narration, illustrating for the listeners the two central themes of isolation and fragility of human relationships. We first have the broad societal breakdown after the zombies awaken in Rome. And then we're shown a kind of self-imposed exile by your main character as he travels with his pals, and he's gleaming little insights into their personalities and motivations, which seem to ironically connect him back with society as a whole in the end. And I can't help but get the feeling that this story comes from a deeply personal place in you, in much the same way uh, 3.13 a.m. kind of did with those stories. Is there any real-life connections to the characters and events portrayed, singing zombies aside? Which is an excellent twist on that genre, by the way. I thought that was very, very well done. Oh, yeah, thank you. I always wanted to do a zombie story. I just wanted to do something uh, uh, different. But yes, that was a uh, very personal story in that it's, it is a total act of wish fulfillment. It's a story about wish, uh, a story about wish fulfillment. So you have this guy... And in the breakdown of society that comes when the zombies come, he sees his chance. His life isn't working out so great. He's, you know, dead end jobs. He's kind of lost and he sees the opportunity to do what I have always wanted to do. And to this day, sometimes I just, I just want to get in a car and drive and just be free, you know, just above everything else, be free. So here's a guy who irresponsibly, yes, he sees his chance and, to me, that book is 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 uh, very poignant because there he is, and he's he's in his he's in the van, and he's got these people he really genuinely likes and cares about around him, and he's got the perfectly understanding girlfriend. You know, it's just so wonderful right there, supporting him even with his crazy ideals, and he just goes. And I I think I always wanted to be on some level that guy with those friends, with, with those supportive people around me who say, yeah, it's, it's okay to just get in the van and just drive with no direction, no plan. And uh, yeah, and the book is about um, his feelings about it and how it all works out for him kind of in, in some really sad ways, but in some very, very good ways uh, as well as he tries to figure out, he tries to figure out America, where it's going. He's trying to figure out society. He's trying to figure out himself. And yeah, I always, always like that story, but yeah, it's not, not much of a, um, 
you know, when it comes to killing zombies, um, it's got some of that. But uh, it, yeah, most of all, it's about a guy just wanting to be free. And for those who haven't listened to it, I'm definitely not going to give away the ending because what a wonderful kind of twist ending to it. But what I really appreciated was how you portrayed the zombies. And I believe that when they would rise from the dead as zombies, they were singing this kind of haunting melody. If I'm, if I'm recalling, uh, you know, in, any of the facts, right. But you had a way where the zombies were so creepy because they weren't scary because it's kind of like the old Western European notion of the remnant, like this remnant of someone you once knew rose from the grave because the metaphysical alchemy just wasn't quite right. Like the universe itself is off kilter somewhat. And the reality has like bled over into some other weird dimension. And so the zombies have risen up with this weird characteristic. And what made it so terrible is the humanity that you could see in the zombies. And what I loved how you built the tension in that story when your characters were sitting around a school, I believe they'd gotten out of their van and they're getting this secondary information about, Hey, the zombies are starting to change. They're becoming more aggressive and there's stories of people being attacked. And so, I mean, if anyone is interested in song of the living dead it's really, really good. And as Soren said, it's not very big on, Hey, you know, we need to build a fort. <laughs> you know, it, it is a mm-hmm. fort zombie fiction, but uh, to me, it's so much more, and I really, really loved it. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think trying to make the zombies creepy in that it's just not clear what they want. You know, in in zombie fiction, the zombies are trying mm-hmm. to trying to eat your face, right? But in yeah. um, I thought, well, what about a story where they they don't know what's going on? Like, what? Why are these? Yeah, there there just seem to be these remnants. But what is going on with the zombies? We don't even people in the story don't even know. And what a powerful uh, device for the listener, because like when we're trying to picture that story, when I listen to it for the first time and like, I'm trying to like, you know, have the software in my brain running to simulate the scenes, the characters and other, you know, fiction horror that I've listened to, which is really good. I mean, I'm not going to down another author's work, but it's like my brain can kind of generate the room that they're going into it can generate the next scene before it happens. But in song of the living dead, I didn't have that ability. And it's like, um, uh, if you've ever watched the movie Scarface, there's this expectation of violence from scene Mm -hmm. to scene. And you can't really predict what's going, what the scene is going to do. And that story kind of had that same vibe to it. It's really, it's kind of difficult to describe, but I I really enjoyed it. That's interesting. Yeah. It's it's not one, one that I would think, would have that, but then it's, it's good to know that, that it did, I think, because it is a little bit off kilter. The situation is a little bit unusual. Uh, it doesn't quite, not quite following the same zombie script. So it's like, yeah, what the hell, what the hell is going on here? It's like a low key fight or flight. And like, that's what was kind of creepy about it. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I don't know if I make a mistake in doing this Soren. maybe you can help me out. But when I'm trying, but if anyone asks me about knife point horror, or good horror fiction on a podcast to listen to. 
I automatically recommend an oral history of hell. And I just can't help myself. Your writing is so visceral, raw, and you present this image of utter desolation backlit against a shimmering and undefined hope. If only our main character can make it past the perimeter. In fact, I would hazard to suggest, and as someone who really appreciates Joseph Conrad, I I don't say this lightly, but I think an oral history of hell is our generation's heart of darkness in the sense that what Conrad did is he held up a mirror to late European modernism and colonialism and the dehumanization it was doing to Europe at the time. And I kind of get a sense that an oral history of hell is a mirror of our postmodern society now to where if you make one little mistake in a society where nothing is ever erased, where there's no chance of reconciliation or forgiveness, where little mistakes is the event horizon of a black hole that you'll just fall down. And I feel like an oral history of hell is in some ways an indictment of this society that we currently live in. Now, that's just my opinion, and I'm voicing it to the author that wrote the freaking thing in front of me. But That is that is an awesome uh, <laughs> interpretation. That is like, that's good stuff. Well, yeah. it's, um, well, thank you uh, for two reasons, but also thank you for writing it because, um, you know, I have a law enforcement background and, you know, everything that your characters go through, it's like some people will make one little mistake and it has a, and it's like a broken glass. I mean, it spider webs out mm-hmm. into all these different areas of their life. And I can't help but just think that in a time before the internet, before when someone could go to another town, like you were talking about this yearning to travel and be free. It's almost like we live in a world where no one is free from their own mistakes anymore. I mean, look at people who have had a gaffe, people who uh, have said stuff they shouldn't that gets recorded on the internet for all eternity. And You know, I think of the dehumanization on a physical level that happened in Heart of Darkness and how when the main character, I see, gosh, I'm, you see, I kind of get the, the movie Apocalypse Now in the book. It kind of runs together in my head. Mm. I was going to say Colonel Kurtz, but when Marlo, yeah, yeah, but uh, when he reaches Kurtz in the jungle, he finds basically a shriveled up old man, which is an, which is a metaphor for Europe at the time, the European great powers. And our main character in an oral history of hell, he goes through this whole journey and he's in this netherworld, but then he realizes by the note that his friend leaves him that it was either an illusion, but, you know, he's able to like break out of this vicious cycle that he's found himself in, in hell by going through hell. And um, so my question for you, sorry about that rant, by the way. And yeah, um, it's, it's excellent stuff. But um, did the story achieve what you wanted it to achieve? And what other thoughts and insights can you offer on that, on an oral history of hell? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, 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 kind of remember wanting to um, 
see how dark I could go, but then not just absolutely drown the reader. And it was long before it was a um, an audio uh, book. Uh, you know, can you get so dark and then have a, a plausible ray of light at the end of this darkness? And uh, yeah, you're right. The, like the characters in that book, they're just walking this knife edge. They're just so, so in life, so close to their own mortality, just constantly, just or even just abject failure. Just nothing. Nothing's working. And um, I, I think it was very heavily kind of inf- under the influence of. You know, like your, your Ingmar Bergman, your Andrei Tarkovsky, back when I wrote that, of, of like this, um, you know, let me just go real dark. And um, with these these wintry, awful landscapes and these people looking within and finding nothing. But, you know, can a story be done that goes that, goes that dark, but actually still finds some kernel of, of goodness and some sort of meaning in it all? So I, I'm glad that I that that story does kind of take a turn eventually. Uh, but I, yeah, that's, I don't think I'm, I'm the same kind of writer now. I will never, I don't think I'll ever go that dark again because that is a, it's a, that's a rough one. And I don't want to do that to readers or listeners anymore, even if I can kind of pull them out of it at the end. Uh, that's going, oral history of hell goes maybe one step too far too often for for even my taste i haven't listened to that one in a long time um because it's i do find it like really <laughs> bleak for so long Whew. it is definitely a bleak story and it's also a very human story and it's totally uncontrived like i think that's my returning um you know my attraction to it is this authentic? And I don't feel like you were trying to say anything beyond what your characters were trying to say. I've read stories in fiction that's very, very dark, and I can sense a philosophical, metaphysical sleight of hand somewhere. Like they're trying to send me a message, they're trying to tell me something. But what I liked about it was just the raw feelings and emotions of it all. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I wrote that, I was uh, a fair amount younger when I could sort of write about mortality uh, and not bat an eye. And now that, you know, the, the record needles has advanced along the LP of my life a little, to a disturbing degree, now I don't want to go there. Uh, but it is a reality that we are with and walking among death all the time. And... Um, it just seemed inevitable, like the kind of things that go through my head that I would actually try to write a story about that sometime. Just, you know, instead of cloaking it in, in the supernatural, just write about mortality straight up and the fear of it, the terror of it, the inescapableness of it. Good, good, good times. Good times for a Friday night. Kick back, <laughs> open a cold one and listen to an oral history of hell. And there we have it, folks, if you're, but, but then again, I enjoy the fiction by like, um, horror author B.L. Blankenship. Mm-hmm. And I really like the dark places that he goes in his writing. And there's something to, so there's, there's almost a purity about it. And it's kind of hard for me to describe, but I'm trying to save this from a rabbit hole. So, 
So I think we can talk about, you know, what a lot of people are probably waiting for is knife point horror and kind of getting into that a little bit. So my personal question, as I've always wondered about the logo for knife point horror, it kind of gives off a sense of Baroque Lovecraftian-esque like vibes. And I was wondering where did the design come from? Uh, who designed it? You know, how, how did you put this thing together? I'm sure there's a good story behind it. Uh, it's the glory of public domain. So Hieronymus Bosch, the artist, has a famous painting called The Garden of Earthly Delights. And I don't know how, I think I was probably actively looking for spooky art that I could use freely. And if you zoom in real tight on a small corner of that massive painting, you'll see that little fella who is the logo hiding under the Kleenex or whatever it is. And that just, I, I zoomed in on that. I'm like, yeah, he's that, that thing is the thing. That's, that's the thing. It is just um, nightmare fuel. That little guy, the little guy, the little critter. So he's, he's stuck around for many years now. Have you ever seen Don't Be Afraid of the Dark? And there was an older version of it, and they did a remake. And, uh, gosh, his name escapes me, gosh. He's the same guy that did the Wolfman remake. But um, oh, No, I didn't. I didn't. See, I never saw the original. No, I didn't. Uh, okay, all right. Well, I definitely don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I think that's a discussion for another time then. But mm. it uh, kind of it reminded me of the creatures from that. But, um. Mm. So my question yeah, it's, is, it's such a, it's such a oh, simple oh, yeah. creature too. You know, there's, there's very little design to that creature. It's so simple. Um, yeah, it, 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 if I think about it too much, it kind of bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. So I'm definitely going to put that up on this podcast episode or this YouTube episode. Sorry, I'm still in, in history pod mode right now, but you know, it's almost like a, a glimpse of something demonic that you would see out of like the corner of your eye for like a flicker of a second. And, and, and you're like, Oh my shit, what is that? <laughs> it's yeah. like a, yeah. a creepiness. Yeah. I love it. But it definitely fits the, you know, the tenor of knife point horror. So what is it about horror stories that so intrigues both readers and authors? Why do we keep coming back there? Uh, well, kind of like when we were talking about an oral history of hell, I, I think there is there's something about the confrontation with our own mortality that I think is just so essential to horror because it ain't horror unless somebody dies. Let's face it. And I I, I think it's much the same as when you get on a roller coaster or have a, a terrifying close call somewhere. It, people voluntarily terrify themselves to to kind of just brush up against the end in some manageable way and then back away from it nice and safe. And that can feel good. I, I, I swear it has something to do with, with that when I, when I want to boil it down, which is kind of sick and dark, but you know, it's healthy. You know, we're just, we're, I think we're fascinated by demises. And of course, in horror, the more spectacular and weird, the demise, we're not dealing with someone passing away in their sleep at age 89, we're dealing with the wolfman coming up behind them and off goes the head or, you know, or the mummy just sidling up and saying, how do that's, that's the kind of demise that horror gives us. And I think we're just fascinated. We're fascinated when we see it in the, in the news, it's got a dark pull over us and we're fascinated to kind of brush up against it in fiction. 
I think there's something there. I've never come up with a better better explanation for why, why people are so into horror. So is writing horror, is that easy for you? Uh, less and less. Nothing is ever really easy. Um, I think uh, a lot of it has become muscle memory uh, with horror because I think maybe I just polluted my mind with too many horror movies, too many horror stories from a young age, and I kind of got into the rhythm of it. So it's it's either, easier for me to work out on the page in a way that's maybe makes a satisfying story, but definitely not easy, and, and not even as easy it was say five years ago. It only gets it only gets tougher. So can you tell us about your creative process? How did these stories start? Where do you go with it? And, um, you know, just what, what's that like, you know, and, and I'm really curious too, when I ask about creative process or, is, you know, once you've developed a story and you've written a script, where do the sounds come from? Because, um, I've heard, um, you know, the tracks in the background and I can tell you put in a ton of thought behind each and every one of them. And a lot of times, I mean, a background track will just carry the atmosphere of your story so deeply. Yeah, that's the only part for me that is just pure fun is, okay, now it's time to add the music and the sounds. Like, what do I want to do? How far do I want to take it? Where do I put them? How long do they last? How loud are they? It's just total experimentation. Um, but essentially the, the ideas come very randomly. I never know when they're going to hit. It's, it's, I wish I had, had some sort of formula. And then after that, it's just a lot of sitting around and thinking and taking long walks and having coffee. And, uh, I don't like to sit down in front of the laptop unless I absolutely have to, unless I'm absolutely ready to actually write. Um, I used to be a great believe in the outline. I used to outline everything to within an inch of its life and no more. Now I'm, I have more, it's entertaining to me to kind of go out and just wing it and, and yes, run into a lot of problems along the way and find things are unworkable, but that's just almost part of the fun to me. Nothing about the actual tap, tap, tap has any allure. It hasn't had that allure in like 20 years. I just, I can't imagine. I used to really enjoy that. Now it's like any excuse to get away from the computer. Um, yeah, so, uh, that's, that's basically it. it it's, it's a lot, it's like 80% thinking, and then it all, mostly all comes out, uh, on the laptop in three really fast drafts, really fast drafts. And then as I record, literally as I record, I'll just improvise changes, uh, just constantly. There's all, I was looking at, um, on my laptop, the files for the most recent knife point horror story was, it was like a half an hour. It was about a guy afraid of his own laundry. Cleanse. Oh man, that was hilarious. Like, <laughs> and what and I realized at that end, yeah. <laughs> so you did you find it, yeah, I, I find it kind of disturbing that story myself, but uh, a lot of people just find it um maybe it made it a little bit too funny because it's it's it kind of creeps me out. But looking, you know, I have I, I look at the file, uh, the file folders for that, and I see there are like twenty-five separate um tracks of like punch-ins that I had to do. There's like 11 versions that, that say final version on it, but then like I hated something. Like moving the music around two seconds each way, there's like 20 different versions of that. It's just like, oh, you know, I didn't think I was a perfectionist, but apparently I just can't let certain things go. It's very, um, so I never know what's going to just take forever 
to, to do. The really creepy part of that story was when the character came into the amphitheater and there was like the pal of it and like your description of it, like the stains of humanity. And me and my wife were, were talking about the story and, and, and we were wondering like, so we covered himself in a tide or, and we were wondering, I was like, did he really kill his sister? And was that his blood? Was this all in his head? And that was kind of like left open to us. And I was like, what if he was really covered in blood? And he, and he was just like some like crazy dude, but I listened to it a second time, but it looks like you're about to say something. Well, yeah, I, I had I never thought of the tide as blood because yeah. And uh, you know, the reason we have kind of this little bit of a preamble in front of that story. And even in the description of the story, when I, when I, when I posted it, you'll see that, yeah, he he killed his sister. He is he has just gone so far into the metaphor, maybe in the hopes that it will bring some kind of sense to his sad existence that uh, he's just completely lost. So to me, he is he is simply a murderer who has gone totally off his nut in kind of a darkly funny way. Uh, but we must never forget that he is telling the story from a prison cell. So he's, he's, and, he's hardcore. You know, w one of the things that you did in that story that added a whole other dimension to it for me was his buddy, quote unquote, who may or may not be real and a very unreliable narrator telling this, but his buddy who we called kind of gave him some information about this entity and like, you know, how this epiphenomenal event would happen where like human emotions and psychology would get like, would literally kind of take on a life of its own. And it added like a mythos to the story. I was like, dang, I was like, he just kind of slipped a little, you know, a, a mythos in this. I was like, there's a lot going on in that. <laughs> I would like someone <laughs> I, I like to build that. on that mythos. Someone please like take <laughs> yeah. that to the next step. That would be hilarious. Yeah, to me, that yeah. character is, I mean, I like to think that character is too. actually, I mean, yes, on the phone with him and actually does believe in the sentience of laundry. And it's just in contributing to the poor guy's madness. This guy, I mean, it's one of those crazy conspiracy theorists who's just taking it to the nth degree, but not realizing the damage that he's doing to this guy's mind. But uh, yeah, let, let's get that mythos going. Let's get the, the laundry taking over the world mythos. Well, I tell you what, I know enough bullshit philosophy and comparative religions. I'm sure that we could cook something up. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure ready to do it. Especially yeah. if it involves, you know, good solid merch Laundry. sales. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> there we go. All right. You see, I knew it. You really wanted to go mainstream sword. <laughs> Smoked you out. So my two favorite stories on Knife Point Horror would have to be Impound and the next one you have yet to write. That's my other favorite one, too. Do you have a favorite story and one that resonates with you that you've written in Knife Point Horror? I, I have a new one that I, I, I think I really like how it turned out, uh, which is a very recent one called The Smoke Child. Oh, and yeah, I like yeah, it because, yeah. okay. um, you know, it's a lot of different kinds of stories in one package, a little true crime, a little mystery, some supernatural, some good old fashioned, almost slasher vibe. And um, 
part part of the reason I wrote it was because you know you teenagers in horror movies are so stupid. They're so despicable. I hate them all. Like why can't uh, like a, a a slasher story ever feature the kind of teenagers that I kind of remember from high school? This little subset, this little group who make all the right decisions, who are good kids, who are very aware and very respectful of the dangers in the world, but nevertheless, when the slashing comes, uh, they're just it's a problem. So um, I did like that one. I, and I like the, I like the fact that it kind of experimented with the audio format a little bit, did it somewhat differently. And I just, uh, I, I wound up kind of grooving to that one. I wasn't sure how it was going to turn out, but um, I, I, I like the smoke child these days. So the smoke child was the one that was a bit of a frame story. Like, wasn't there a lecture at the very beginning? And yeah, it's in the form of, the guy who went through this is simply giving right. uh, a lecture. It's not clear where. It, maybe it's in the back of some bookstore. Maybe it's in some college hall. You're never quite sure. But he's he's got got his powerpoints. He's got his, and it was just kind of an experiment in understatement. He's always found that the, the one of the best ways to tell a really good scary story is to completely under under tell it with the emotions. I'm, I'm usually, I usually go a little bit over the top with the narrations and here's a guy who comes along and says, Oh, by the way, here's what happened to me and my friends 30 years ago. And he almost never cracks as he tells these horrifying things. It's kind of a based on a real lecture. I saw uh, John Krakauer, the author give about uh, the Mount Everest disaster. I thought, how awesome this guy is just completely, you know, level-headed, almost cheerful and what he's describing is so horrifying that it's really working. You know, he's not trying to sell you the story. He knows the story is selling itself. I thought, yeah, I want to do something like that. You know, I was going to say that it added a whole other layer to it and one that I really appreciated, but yeah, yeah, definitely the PowerPoint. And, and like you said, just the under representation of what it is, you know, a very powerful, effective story. Now, I like Impound a lot, too. And I, I tell you, I, yeah, there's something about sometimes there's one of the stories where one of the visuals just sticks in my brain very intensely. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's the visual of the guy. Um, there's a scene where he's trying to get out of that lot and it's kind of raining. And he's in the car and he's trying to inch his the windshield forward. wipers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then yeah, he sees yeah, this guy. Yeah. You know, you know, the moment where he sees the guy. It's the wheelbarrow that had the tarp over it and the arm right. came up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, for man, some reason, cool. I'm always, I was just there. I can see that so strongly. It doesn't happen a lot. Um, but that was a case where I, I, I've never gotten that out of my mind. Like, yeah, that, that really felt, as I was writing that one, like I was really there. So did the idea for Impound, did that start off, Soren, as an image that you had in your head? Like a vision of the single scene that you built off of? Yeah, I walked past one of those places. Um, it was just this massive, massive uh, junkyard slash impound lot. And I remember the terrain was just odd. Like the terrain was entirely dirt. It wasn't paved or anything. And it's it sort of like an upslope. I thought, what an eerie place this would be at two in the morning. And then I got to thinking about I'd always kind of wanted to do um, – a little bit of a twist on sort of alien stories, just a subtle, subtle twist. Like how, how, how subtle can you make it? And then it all came together after that. But yeah, it was, it was 
that that one was okay. That's a that's a spooky ass place that I just walked past. That's got to be a story. My favorite part of that story was when the guy went to the house and he's trying to forget this memory. He's trying to bury it. He's trying to bury it, which is a great metaphor for the very real body. I think that was buried, uh, this crime that he had committed, but he goes into the house and, and, and like, it's almost like this initiation almost for our character. Like he's going through, you, you know, he's isolated and then he's drawn into like, you know, the outer layer of the house. Then he goes in deeper and deeper and inside of the house sits this dark secret in carnage. I mean, he sees, you know, the homicide scene that happened down there and any moment I was expecting like a John Carpenter, the thing to come out. But what's worse is that he heard it on the other side of that door. And, and it's like the fate of the world was like balanced in his decision. And that's what I love about the universe of Knife Point Horror. Is it's like people will make mistakes and it just cascades. I mean, it, it just goes and goes and goes. And uh, I mean, really, really par powerful effect when I was listening to it. But that was my biggest takeaway from Impound. And yeah, that's know. Like what I mean, you're talking about before. Like that's what. Yeah, that's a very uncomfortable story because it's it's the worst case scenario of you did one thing 25 years ago, and you cannot escape it, and it's just lurking out there. And if the wrong person remembers the wrong thing at the wrong time, here it comes back. And that's um, that's a oh, that's a, that to me is very uncomfortable. It's, that's, and yeah, more than ever, that's the world we're living in. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's, there's no escaping it. And it seems like the event horizon of the one bad decision that could destroy anybody, you know, where, where does it begin? You know, at what point can someone cross over and make a bad decision and they're, and they're irredeemable. And, you know, what does that say about everyone else? But yeah, uh, impound definitely had a lot going on. Yeah, like, you know, when you're, uh, when you yourself are arrested 10 years from now for stealing priceless art treasures, um, and I'm associated with you through this video on, on YouTube, you know, how I will rue the day that I spoke to you, <laughs> suspecting that you were, in fact, an art thief. Of, I mean, look at how you're dressed. You're dressed so well. It's, it's almost like you're trying to hide something about yourself. <laughs> art thief. <laughs> I'm just going to go out on a limb and just take a wild guess. <laughs> I knew it. No, no, I promise. I, I, I found it at, at Goodwill, Soren. and I found it at Goodwill. That's all it is. It was trees, nothing more. But yeah, yeah, and and what and what they would do is they would take uh, me at the most you know unflattering pose possible. They'll frame phrase it, and they'll have that, and then they'll have you right next to it in question marks. And oh man, you know he associates with it. And then they'll take a compilation of like the darkest part of your writing. And that's all that anyone is going to talk about. Right. He hinted that he was in cahoots with this Frank. Yeah. Yeah. In this, yeah it's, this he is, was there. This is the digital yeah. world. This is it. Good times. Yeah, Good times. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so where do you see Knife Point Horror moving into the future, Soren? Uh, it's still like a, a very... You know, really interesting challenge for me to think of these things and and to uh, follow through and to struggle often through writing them. But uh, and it still feels really good when 
uh, people say that, uh, you know, they have a long car trip coming up and they like it when there's like a new knife point that they can listen to for that. I, I, I think that's, that's terrific. So as of now, even though I, I do feel like I'm losing a little, a little bit of my hold on other kinds of writing little by little, it's still, when, when a good idea comes, it's still about as, as entertaining and, and rewarding as it gets. So I don't, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know when it'll end. I really don't. I, I always, I, two or three times I thought I can't, I got nothing left, but then it's weird. The creative spark just comes back for whatever reason. I, I always figured I, had, I only had a certain number of creative years, like a lot of people. And sometimes I think I'm at the end, like, and I got nothing, but, um, so far, it's proven to be false. So we, we, we will see. But I, I, I don't enjoy that feeling of finding that really spooky moment in a story. Like, yeah, that's the moment. That's the moment. And, and typing it up and recording it. I still love that. I love doing that. Well, I hope you keep on doing it for many, many, many years, Soren. Because myself, all of your listeners out there, the people that consume your work, you know, it really kind of helps us get through the grind helps us kind of, um, you, you know, it, it helps make us feel thankful for what we have. <laughs> so that's what it does, especially some of the more darker stories and, and the relationships in our life. And um, so definitely, I think that you've got at least another 40 years ahead of you. So <laughs> you better just buckle down, get used to it. They're going to be coming out with CRISPR. It's going to alter our genome. They're going to expand our life, do all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, isn't, it, isn't it, oh, go, go ahead. Oh, no, no, oh, no, no, please go I on. I was going to say, isn't it interesting how like the, these dark supernatural stories, it's like comfort food. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just, I, I don't, I, I, I find it tough to explain. I don't even know psychologically why that is, but when times are tough and the world is bleak, I don't want a Hallmark movie. I just want more good horror. That's where that's like the place I want to go to get away from it. Um, so it does make me feel good if I can if I can give that comfort food kind of chicken pot pie uh, to people. Um, if if it, if it's horror, then it's horror. It's great. You know, the best thing about it is that it will make the listener forget whatever they're going through, if just for a little bit. Like you will forget, uh, you know, really bad stuff that you're going through. If only for 30 seconds here or there, but that's what your writing does for me. I've talked to many other people that love your work and they say the same thing. So that's good. I'm, I'm glad, you know, yeah, it, whatever form it took, I'm, I'm glad just, just want to make some person happy for 45 seconds out there in the wilderness of, of, of this difficult life. Happy to well, do it. Well, hopefully you have made our listeners and viewers very, very happy for about, I'm guessing about an hour and almost 10 minutes. Well, no, well, wait, no, that's an hour and a half. Wow. Has it been an hour and a half, Soren? I can't believe length it. production. Wow. I am looking at that. Wow. And here you are saying that you don't want to do movies, but <laughs> and with an art thief, no less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was kind of hoping that when you started talking about like the size of the universe and whatnot, I was hoping that you would just roll with that to the point where we would just forget what time it was. Because man, I, I yeah, I could talk about that all day because I know nothing about. I could it. talk about that a lot, and yeah, I, just, I really hope that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, 
Yeah, there, there's some really, really like some interesting works out there on that very subject. And I would love to have you back on again, Soren. And it, it, and it can just be a rabbit hole feast day is what it can be. That's good. We can discuss my, my two attempts to make it through A Brief History of Time before oh, my brain collapsed okay. in of itself. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some other works that work. Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, there's no way that, you know, I, I could ever produce a work like that. But there's some really, really cool podcasts that are floating around out there. And I think John Michael Goldier probably has the best one as far as like, you know, the sciencey stuff and like the size of the universe. And, and he ties in so many different topics, uh, history, philosophy. And I tend to get more out of audio stuff the, these days, mm -hmm. mainly because I'm just so damn busy. I mean, I have my ride into work. I have my lunch break, the ride back home from work, and a little bit of time with my wife in the morning whenever we're drinking coffee to listen to something. So, mm -hmm. which is when which is when we listen to cleanse. So, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I like a good <laughs> history podcast too. I recently went through. Uh, oh, you know Dan Carlin did. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Thirteen hours on World War One, and I was just swimming mm -hmm. in that, just happy as a clam. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the big well, issues we need to tackle and solve, I might add, the big issues of life in the universe and history on your show. I am down for it. We will talk, say when and where. I'm always ready to rumble on those topics. Those are my favorite topics. I love them. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Soren, thank you very much for coming on here and lighting us all kind of shining a little bit of light on the other side of your creepy logo. I'd do it. Happy to be here anytime, anytime. Awesome. I look forward to talking to you again and I hope you have a good night. You too.